You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Take a moment to find that in your Bible. There's Bibles in the pew, and also, if you have a smartphone, you might use that. Again, that's 2 Kings 6, 1 through 23, and if you would please rise if you're able as we read God's word together. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which... The man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. 
So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're looking at the stories of Elisha and Elijah. And this is the last one. So I've really enjoyed this and uh, hate that we're having to finish these stories. There's still more to come, but I'm not going to be able to get through all those. And I think that this is in some ways the climactic one. Um, these are two prophets. Elijah was the first one, and Elisha is the second one. And they were both prophets to northern Israel that was, um, had really lost faith in God and was veering away. Um, kind of like in America today, 40 million people have left the church since the year 2000. And it would have been somewhat like that in the, uh, in the days of Elijah and Elisha. So it's a time where Israel is really turning towards other gods, uh, worshiping other things. And Elijah comes along and he exposes the false gods that they're worshiping. Uh, in their case, it was Baalzebul. And um, he exposes uh, the lie, this is the god of, of life, and shows that actually Beelzebub is the god of death. So that's, that's one thing these prophets do. And any good prophet does that. They expose lies. Uh, but they also, as they're exposing the lie of Baal, they are witnessing to the reign of the life of the true God, of Yahweh, the I Am, the God of Israel, the Creator God. So at the same time, they are uh, showing the falsehood of the false gods, and they're declaring the truth of the true God. And um, together, they have created this revival in Israel that was started by Elijah. When he was on Mount Carmel, uh, he... Um, cast fire down upon Israel, and he was really the only one. He was like the one, the one believer, and um, he was working outside the bounds of Israel. So uh, Elijah calls down this fire on Mount Carmel, and it brings uh, Israel back to life. A very slow start, uh, and then Elisha works within Israel to kind of stoke that fire, and he, he builds the fire. And we saw last week that the fire uh, that was happening, the revival that was happening inside of Israel, it actually kind of burst its banks, and it went outside of Israel, and it went to this general of Syria named Naaman through this servant girl of Israel. And so now the, uh, the life of Yahweh, the revival of God's grace and love and mercy has moved outside of Israel and is, uh, is moving into Syria, into high places, to the, the commander of the army of Syria, Naaman. Uh, and... This week we see, uh, perhaps, it's one of the greatest depictions of the Old Testament of the grace of God. And we were talking about it on the Bible study on Wednesday, and uh, somebody said, this, this, is almost like, this is almost like something that would have happened in the New Testament. It feels so much like the, 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 the God of the New Testament. And uh, it is, a, it's the climax of these stories, I think, because you see, um, I mean, God has always been merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's how he defines himself in the Old Testament. That, that's who he is. But this is one of those sneak previews of kind of the coming of the Messiah and how fully gracious he is, how he loves his enemies. 
and how that life, uh, that's kind of the climax of the revival, this transformative love of enemy that God has. And so I want to look at uh, first the, these chariots of fire that are so famous. You've probably heard of that, the movie Chariots of Fire. Um, and then uh, the victory, how the, the chariots of fire win this victory. It's a very strange victory uh, that they win over the armies of Syria, which is like the, the number one enemy of Israel is Syria. So we'll start with the chariots of fire. Um, revival begins in these house churches, which is the way it always begins. Um, in China, there's a revival because uh, the, the, the Communist Party is, uh, is persecuting Christianity so much that it's actually generating like heat. It's, uh, it's like the pressure is generating heat. And in China, the church is underground, like it was in Israel, and they're mostly house churches. They're these small churches of people meeting in secret. And the, the house church movement is growing. And so in verse 1, the sons of the prophets say, this place is too small. And the sons of the prophets would have been like people in seminary. And uh, I thought of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's seminary that he started in World War II when the Nazis took over Germany. And essentially, the, the church in Germany kind of bowed the knee to Hitler. And, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer would not do that. So he started his own countercultural, like alternative seminary in Finkenwald that was very small, like one little tiny house. And I imagine this as uh, kind of like that house, but now it's gotten too big. There's a, there's a lot of young pastors who want to follow Elisha. And so in verse 2, they go down to the Jordan, um, and they, they begin to build. Let's go get some logs in the Jordan. And they're cutting down uh, these trees down there uh, with these iron axes. And this is the key to the story. Is you, these axes uh, were made of iron, which was incredibly valuable. Um, Maybe like gold, you know, it's like very, very valuable back then. And so uh, you would have had to have rented an axe. It would have been like renting a bobcat, uh, like $40,000 to rent one of these axes. And so uh, this is a really big deal to be cutting down these trees with these axes. And it's an even bigger deal that uh, this guy loses one. So when he's cutting down the tree, it falls into the Jordan River, which is deep enough and muddy enough that you would never find it. And this guy is essentially now facing a life of debt slavery. He's going, to be, uh, he's going to be in the service of the person who lent him the axe. And so in verse 5, there's a lot of emotion in the word, alas. Alas, my master, it was borrowed, knowing that uh, that's kind of the end of his life as he knew it. So uh, it's a really big deal when verse 7 says, Elisha threw in a stick. And I don't really know how Elisha thinks of these things, like how he, what these little kind of things he does to make other things happen, but he kind of reverses the law of gravity here, and the iron, which is very heavy, one of the heaviest substances they knew, it floated. So the, the, the axe head floats up, and that's not magic, uh, that's revival. That's new life coming, because it saved the life of that seminarian, that young seminarian uh, whose axe it was. And so uh, this is what revival looks like. It's like when a person's life is restored. A person who is facing slavery is set free. And it is, uh, the, the storyteller brilliantly contrasts that story of the axe head, um, which is not like a parlor trick. It's, it's very important. It's, it's saving someone's life. He contrasts that with this next story of the kind of the culture of death created by false gods like Baal. Verse 8, uh, it says, once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, and once implies it happened a lot. So this is not a one-off. And um, the king of Syria warring against Israel implies that there are these raids that he would make. And I, I thought of immediately of October the 7th and Hamas attacking 
Israel, you know, going after the elderly, the children sick and dying. Um, it's exactly the opposite of Yahweh's desire for life. So it's the contrast between what was going on in that community uh, of Elisha and now the king of Syria, uh, who is bloodthirsty. And um, God hates it so much. It's so much the opposite of his desire for life that he does this interesting thing where he, um, he penetrates into Syria's war room and he kind of steals his battle plans. So it would be like if the Ukrainians had access to Putin's plans to attack uh, Bakhmut or Kiev. They know where he's going to attack before he attacks, which if you've been in the military, you know um, that's, that's the best possible scenario. If you know they're coming, then you can be prepared for them. And so Elisha's like this mole, but it's a spiritual thing. Like the bug in the phone of the king of Syria is the Holy Spirit telling Elisha what they're going to do. It's a very interesting miracle. Um, when, the, when the king finds out in verse 11, who's clearly very clueless because he knows nothing that his generals know, uh, he says in verse 11, who is the traitor? Who is a double agent? Who is, who is in our midst that is telling them the battle plans? There was one time where one of the announcers for Wake Forest football teams was stealing the plans for Wake Forest uh, and giving them to opponents. And of course, this is quite a bit more at stake here. But um, the king knows that uh, there is some traitor in the midst. And um, the generals in verse 12, of course, say, it's none of us. Elijah is hearing the words you speak in your bedroom, which is, it's amazing that he would believe that that was the case. Um, but he does. Shockingly, he believes what they're saying. In verse 13, he says, uh, go and see where he is that I may seize him. So he wants to go and, and snuff out the mole. And um, obviously, he has forgotten that Elijah knows whenever he makes plans, so he knows that he's coming now. So Elisha is fully prepared as Darth Vader sends the stormtroopers to attack the Jedi. I mean, these are, this is like Elisha is this, this man with nothing. He has no weapon at all. Uh, he, he has only the power of the spirit. And he's being attacked by a whole, I mean, it's, it's tons of people in his army that are attacking him. It's, it seems like the crack troops of the army of Syria are attacking Elisha because the king hates him so much. So verse 15 uh, it says that uh, the servant wakes up to uh, an army of horses and chariots all around the city. And this would have been the weapon of mass destruction of the, of the ancient Near East. So uh, arm, uh, horses and chariots were like an Abrams tank or an Apache helicopter. They were, they were like the most frightening thing you could see outside your door. So this servant, whoever it is, is terrified because there are the... the the highest level of military in the, in the ancient world is right there. And it's just, it's just the servant and Elisha, and they're being attacked by this huge military. And they're in Dothan, which is like down in a valley, kind of like the Yadkin Valley, and they're coming down from the hills to attack them. And Elisha is prepared. He's obviously heard about this attack uh, because the Holy Spirit's told him. And in verse 16, he says, fear not. And somehow he has intel that Yahweh is going to send uh, angels to fight for them. So he tells the servant, and I love this line, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. He who is within you is greater than he who is in the world. It reminds me of that statement of Jesus, that we have a power in us um, as Christians that is greater than the power of all the armies of the world. I mean, this, again, this would have been um, Navy SEALs. You know, this, these were the people... Uh, that would have been the most dangerous. These, these fighters that were coming for Elijah and Elijah. And 
And Elisha says, do not be afraid. Because there, there is this invisible army out there that is stronger than these Syrian troops, these ho- even horses and chariots. And you can imagine that uh, the servant is unconvinced because he's looking around frantically for the Israelite horses and chariots, and there's nothing there. So he's, uh, he's frightened, he's terrified. And, and then verse 17, Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes. And all of a sudden, he sees into the third heavens. In the, uh, in the, I love uh, Stranger Things, can't wait for the new one. And in the, in, the, in the series Stranger Things, they have this idea of the upside down. It's like, it's like everything you see here exactly, except it is flipped upside down. And uh, it's this other world that is interacting with this world. And that's what the Bible sees the heavens to be. It's got the first heavens, which is here under the sky. The second heavens is the entire cosmos with the stars and galaxies. The third heavens is like this even bigger thing that's always interpenetrating and interacting with this world. And that's what, uh, it's like he pulls back the veil. Like normally we can't see the heavens. But in this case, God pulls back the veil and the servant suddenly sees horses and chariots everywhere. And I asked the Wednesday morning Bible study, wouldn't you want to see the armies of God that are out there defending you? And one person said, I would not want to see that. Because anyone that sees an angel in the Bible, even one angel, is terrified. Imagine an entire, like, like a whole hillside of horses and chariots on fire, whatever that means, of God. And I do think, we don't know what that means. I don't think they were actually literally horses and chariots in heaven. I think they're, the only way he could have described them would have been the word horse and chariot. We would probably use another word. Um, we might use like a missile or something like that. Or an F-16, you know, fighter jet or something like that. But he, to him, horses and chariots are what he saw, but it was real. And it's still there. And if you ever saw this, you would be terrified. And I think it's beautiful that the fear of the angel armies of heaven is greater than the fear of the Assyrian army. And so that fear swamps the fear of all, uh, of all the different armies that any general or any dictator on, on this planet can ever generate. The, uh, the supernatural army of heaven that protects us. And, you know, prayer rises up from that fear of the heavenly realm. If you have this fear, and that's the Bible word for just respect or reverence or awe, that's what fear is. And it's a fear of uh, there's another realm out there that is always interacting with this realm, and we can't see it. But when we pray, that realm is activated. And it's confidence in this other realm, the other side of the portal. There's something else out there. And so when Elisha says in verse 18, strike them with blindness, immediately they're blind. The author makes it very clear that the, it's like one and then immediately the other. Strike them with blindness, they were struck with blindness. Implying that when you pray, these, uh, these other beings that are out there that have minds, they have awareness, they can interact with a human, like even as complex a thing as the human eye, which is very complex, I understand. Uh, that the optic nerve could be affected by these uh, creatures, these other creatures that are out there. And oftentimes when I pray, I feel like God is distracted. Like when, um, you know, when, my, when I'm on my phone uh, and my son's trying to talk to me and I'm distracted, like he's trying to tell me things or ask me to do things and I'm on my phone. 
I don't know if that's ever happened to you as a parent, but that's happened to me. And I feel like God is like that sometimes, like he's, he's texting someone more important than me. And uh, the reality is from this we see that uh, it's more like a dad uh, when my son's playing basketball and I am like locked in, and, or my daughter. And I, um, I am focused. I, I am not going to be distracted by my phone. And that's the way God is with you. He's like looking at you when you're praying. And you have his full attention. And whatever you're fixated on, you know, whatever the weapon of mass destruction is or the threat, might be a credit card bill. Uh, we got one today. Might be something on your calendar app. You're looking at the app for tomorrow, and what does Monday look like? There's this one thing on the app, and it's terrifying to you. Or it could be something in your body, some part of your body that is broken, that is alien, and your mind's fixed on that. And I think if we could just see the readiness of the mighty ones of God that are out there, like if we could see that, I mean, what would that do to the way that we perceive the problems in our life? We talked about that at the prayer meeting actually last week. There'd be like a line out the door. If, if we actually were aware of the unseen realm and the amount of access we have to power, you would say it's at our fingertips, except it's not at our fingertips because we don't control it. Um, but it is available to us when we pray. That's why God tells us in the Bible, pray, 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 all the time, pray, pray, seek me, call on me, I have power. So that's the chariots of fire. And they blind the army of Syria, but that's not their main intention. The, the angels of, of heaven's army are not there to kill people. That's not why they're there. They are there to save people. They are there to give people grace and mercy. And so the blindness was just the first part of this great plan to engineer a eucatastrophe, which I, is one of my favorite words in the English language, was in, coined by J.R. Tolkien, the, the author of Lord of the Rings. And a eucatastrophe is something that lo looks like a catastrophe, like it's going down, and it's going nowhere, and the plane's going to hit the ground. But at the very last second, it's, it swoops up. And, it, and what looked like a catastrophe is suddenly euphoric, full of joy. And that's what happens in this story uh, with this army of Syria. Somehow, in Elijah's mind, something just flashes in front of his mind. He's like, I know what I'm going to do. And that's when he prays for blindness. He and the Holy Spirit sync up. And it's like, the, it's like a surprise party engagement idea when I was going to ask Margie to marry me, I had this idea of this kind of elaborate ruse where I was going to invite, uh, I was going to ask her to marry me, and I was going to invite her to go to this place for dinner, Spaghetti Warehouse. Doesn't sound very romantic, um, but it was a good place. <laughs> and then I was going to invite my best friends to also come to the Spaghetti Warehouse at the same time, and they didn't know about the engagement, and she didn't know they'd be there, and she'd be so happy that we were engaged. She might have wanted to be alone with me, but no, there were all these friends there. And I love thinking about uh, Elijah, like, muffling his voice, you know, like with his tunic, and speaking to this army now that they're blind, like he's not Elisha, like he's one of the leaders of the troops or something like that. And he tells them, you've come the wrong way, verse 19. This is the wrong city. I'll take you to Elisha. So they're completely helpless. Like, what else are they going to do? They have no recourse. So they're baffled. They're like, I swear I saw signs to Dothan. I think we were in the right place, but now I can't see. And it's like this teacher leading second graders, you know, on a rope to recess. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but teachers will sometimes lead kids on like a rope. They'll all hold the rope. And so Elijah's in the front and the whole army of like the crack troops of Syria holding the rope. It's seven miles from Dothan to Samaria. They're going from this little tiny town where Elijah had a seminary 
Finkenwald to the capital of Samaria, the last place this army wants to be. And then in verse 20, it's like, surprise, oh Lord, open their eyes that they may see. And they take off the blindfold, and it's not Elisha they're looking at, it's the king of Syria. I mean, the king of Israel. It's Jehoram. And uh, the face of Jehoram is the last face they would ever want to see. And not only is it Jehoram's face they're looking at instead of Elisha's, uh, Jehoram is licking his lips for uh, blood, like the hyenas in the Lion King. I love how he says, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He's like so eager to kill them, verse 21. So he's all hyped up on violence, ready to kill them. And the first surprise was, you thought you were about to kill Elisha, and now you're about to be executed. That's surprise number one. Surprise number two is, instead of getting executed, you get blessed. You get a meal. And that's the real eucatastrophe, where he, he flips the script. So he tells this bloodthirsty hyena of a king, you shall not strike them down. And just saying that must have done something to his heart, like just seized his heart. He's like, you will not strike them down, quite the opposite. You will set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And that's the grace. Uh, that's the victory of the armies of heaven when that kind of thing happens. And the revival is so intoxicating to the king of Israel, Jehoram of all people. And I don't know if he became uh, a follower of Yahweh at that point. He certainly didn't seem to be. But at that moment, something happened in his heart that even this bloodthirsty, violent man wants to join in the revival. And however sincere he was, he does Elisha one better. Maybe just to kind of one-up him or something, but he's so stirred up by this vision of mercy that he's like, bread and water is not enough. No way. They're not getting bread and water. They're going to get the fattened calf. You know, they're going to get the very best of my table. And so it says in verse 23, he didn't just give them bread and water. He prepared for them a great feast. The, the people that he is uh, so ready to strike down, and strike down is a pretty violent word. It's like more than just kill, it's like slaughter. And the people he is ready to strike down, uh, he has just prepared his greatest feast for. It. He's like demonstrated the lavishness of the king's table. And, you know, we've seen uh, in these stories amazing expressions of life, the life of God. We, uh, we saw food multiplied. These, uh, this widow's oil just kept flowing. We saw bread brought by ravens to Elijah. Uh, we saw a drought ended. It had taken the country for three years, this massive rainstorm in the middle of a drought. We saw this widow fed. Um, we saw these bullies who were thwarted by God, the innocent protected. The depression, uh, the suicidal ideation of Elijah was lifted by God when the angel touched him. We've seen diseases healed, like Naaman's leprosy, and two children have been raised from the dead. And all that's, that's part of the revival. But the real revival, when, when there's a really a revival, what happens is uh, you see grace. You see amazing grace. You see the love of enemies from the throne of heaven. And that's what transforms not only people, but it transforms politics. It transforms empires. And one of my favorite things about this passage is verse 23. And it's so, uh, it's so subdued. It's just subtle. Like I love it. It just kind of throws it in there without any comment. It just simply says... The Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Now, I bet they didn't, because what happened to them just completely threw him off so much that he, he could not compute what had just occurred. When his troops came back to him, like 
filled with grace and filled with uh, food and wine and joy where they should have been killed, that messed with the uh, inner workings of Syria. Now, in the next verse, probably the son of that king, Ben-Hadad, immediately comes and raids again. So it's not like it transforms him forever, but this king in this period, um, he was changed. And I think that it shows that grace is deeper than Machiavellian politics or realpolitik. You know, we think that's reality. It's like that kind of politics. Um, but this shows that, no, even this king uh, filled with violence can be subdued by God's grace. It can even influence geopolitics. I mean, the only thing that can make a vengeful person love their enemies is this story of God's grace. It's the only way that can melt a heart. So if your child is filled with disrespect, uh, filled with anger, or your spouse cuts you, or your, your boss blows up on you, uh, what's going to bring repentance? What's going to change their heart? What changes the human heart in a situation like that? You know, is it going to be a counterattack, or harsh words, or doubling down on threats? That doesn't change anyone. That never, it's, it's not always wrong. There are times where you've got to really hold the line and bring the law. But what really changes the heart is just this wildness of mercy and shocking grace. And, and not just in personal relationships, but even in politics. On uh, October 7th, uh, these five Hamas terrorists, I heard the story from, uh, from Mary Margaret, um, these five terrorists from Hamas uh, held this elderly Jewish couple uh, for 20 hours, held them hostage, probably were about to kill them, uh, this couple in their apartment, and uh, the, the the Jewish wife said, I could see how hostile they were, how aggressive. And she said, uh, I decided that I was going to ask them if they were hungry, and they were hungry. And so I made them coffee, and I made them cookies, and I treated their wounds. And she said, eventually we started singing songs together, because her grace was starting to change their hearts. And uh, eventually, Jewish soldiers came into that apartment and killed the terrorists, which was a just thing to do. I mean, they were there to kill a couple. But that's not the gospel. You know, that, I can see why they would take that action, but that's not the way the story of the Bible goes. And the story of the Bible would be like they came in and they had, their, they had them at gunpoint, they were ready to kill them, and they threw down the rifles and just joined in the singing and just brought more food to the feast. And if they had done that, like what would, that, what, what would have happened to the hearts of those Hamas soldiers? I mean, we don't know for sure. But I do know that the gospel says that you're in the king's throne room. The sword is on your neck. You deserve to die. And not only do you not get your head cut off, but you actually get a banquet. You get fed. You get a table. You get a meal. So the gospel is not just God forgives you. That's half the gospel. That's good news. But the gospel is not only does he forgive you, but he lifts you up and treasures you and values you and feeds you. And that's that's what changes the heart, and that's what we do at this table. That on the night he was betrayed, uh, not the night that we were really nice to him, uh, but the night where we betrayed him. On the night that we did our worst to God, uh, he did his best to us. And knowing he was about to be betrayed by us and killed by us and crucified, tortured, he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took a cup. And he poured out the cup of wine. He said, this is uh, actually not just wine. This is my blood shed for you. 
And so whenever we eat the bread and whenever we drink from the cup, uh, we are once again telling the greatest story that anyone's ever thought of to tell. It's a story that's acted out every week in churches all across the world. To two billion people today, all around the world, every type of person in the world, uh, this meal is what joins all of us together. And it's a very simple story. The story is that uh, Jesus Christ died for our sins and he was raised uh, to heaven for our justification. He ascended into heaven and one day he's going to come again and he's going to rescue us. and He's going to save the world. He's going to bring justice to the world. And that's the simple story of this table. And it's a table for God's enemies. So if you're here and you feel like you've been really bad and you don't deserve God's grace and you shouldn't take this because you've fought him so long or you've hated him so long, you turned your back on him, that is not a reason not to take this. That's a reason to take this. It's an invitation to anyone uh, who is an enemy of God but is now wanting him. Now, if you're here and you don't want it uh, and you're not ready to do this and you're still needing some time to think about it, that's great. We're so glad you're here and we don't want to put any pressure on you to partake. But don't let your sin disqualify you. The only qualification is that you know that you are a sinner and that you need this table. So um, think about that as I'm praying. Father, I pray that everyone would um, know right now in their hearts um, just whether to come up here and... Um, I pray that as they do, if they do, they would, they would come um, with a heart changed by mercy, by your grace, and that we would realize that um, something much greater has happened to us than, the, than this army of Syria. Um, that's just a little tiny parable of a much greater story of this king, this king that ought to have, uh, have uh, had us executed, has instead um, lifted us to his right side on the throne with him, had us come and sit with him on the throne and reign with him. And I pray that um, knowing this story uh, again tonight through this table would, uh, would make us a lot kinder tomorrow to people who we uh, consider to be enemies or people we're scared of or people we don't like or people we talk badly about. Um, change our hearts, Lord, through this meal. Help us to love our children, our spouses, our co-workers, our parents, our siblings better as a result of taking this meal. And we pray in Jesus' name. So there is a great juice on the wall. Remember, we love these rascals.